Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Here is Dr. Michael Rogers, Pastor Emeritus. I'm happy to have this opportunity to preach to you. I've been here in this pulpit, good old comfortable pulpit that I helped the architect design. Therefore, it fits me perfectly. I've been in all kinds of different pulpits since I retired, and some of them don't fit me at all. One I was in was kind of like a crow's nest way up in the air. I won't say where that was, but uh, I feel very much at home here. And it's a great opportunity. By the way, if you don't realize, if you're new perhaps, Pastor Walker is finishing up, I think, the last week or two of his sabbatical, which ordinarily pastors every seven years get a sabbatical here up to 10 weeks or so in length. And Chris's was interrupted by his being elected senior pastor. So he got a little bit of it last year, but he's finishing what was due him now. And I know he's been using the time for planning and just preparing himself for further ministry. I'm reading tonight a longish passage, Psalm 73. I worshiped with you the last Sunday of December in which Pastor Walker preached from a psalm of Asaph. I was here for that, and that was a psalm written by the man Asaph, as is the one I put before you tonight. The second most, uh, numerically speaking, uh, psalm writer next to David. I'll tell you a little bit about Asaph as we go along. Psalm 73, the English title that's been put over it is, God is my strength and portion forever. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness and their hearts overflow with Follies as they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. But if I had said I would speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. 
Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How are they destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes? O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered and when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The grass withers and the flower fades, and the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray for a moment. Father, Help us in times like the week we face as a country with an inauguration, a new president, a turnover of so many things. We feel insecure. We have the jitters. We're wondering what next might be the startling event presented to us. Focus our trust tonight on the only reliable source, yourself. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. It might be that when in the past you have read the Ten Commandments for any reason, and perhaps a lesson or just your own reading, and you look through the commandments and maybe sift them and think, well, where have I been guilty? Where can God find fault with me against the grid of these commandments? You might come to the last of them, number 10, And you probably would say, subconsciously anyway, well, you know, at least this one doesn't threaten me too much. You know what that one is? Exodus 20, 17, the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his manservant, his maidservant, his ox, his donkey, nor anything that belongs to your neighbor. And so you kind of give yourself a get-out-of-jail-free card on this one because you say, well, covetousness. I don't think I've been coveting my neighbor's donkey lately or his, his maidservant or anything like that. And anyway, isn't that kind of a more innocent sin? It, it's not as bad as murder or adultery and the other things that are named. But at least as long as you or I are envying anything else or anyone else in this world. We're breaking a commandment of God that is very damaging to us. We're not trusting firmly in God's providence if we are covetous towards anything. Because envy or covetousness is saying to God, well, I'm not satisfied with the lot I have. I'm not satisfied with whatever wealth or job or physical provisions you've made possible for me. God, I'm not satisfied. I see somebody else who has it better, and I wish I was like that and had possessions or resources or something better than what I have. 
covetousness tends to feed self-envy and eventually can even end up in considerable hostility towards God. Well, as I said, the author of this Psalm 73 is Asaph, a choir master, a Frank Dodd, if you will, in Israel during the reign of Solomon. He was a master poet, probably an instrumentalist, wrote many songs that Israel sang in worship. He bridged the time between David and Solomon, and we would think that he was around when Solomon's temple was finally built. Remember, Israel didn't have a great temple to worship in until Solomon provided it. David, his father, was told he wasn't the man to do it. And yet here's a man of faith who wrote 11 Psalms, and and they're all good ones. Today we read how this man of God almost had a total breakdown of trust in the living God. His opening words are, my foot had almost slipped. I almost fell completely when I considered how I envied other people and who they were and what they were. He was shaken by this. Now, he did start out just pro forma by sort of stating a a creed just to, you know, be sure that he started his psalm in the right way. Truly, God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. Well, that's a good creed. God shows his goodness and his mercy and his grace to those who look to him and, and trust in him. That's his creed. But, first word of verse 2, he's going to tell you that he started disbelieving his own creed and even rebelling against it. So he was saying there are exceptions, it seems, where God isn't good to those who trust him. Unscrupulous villains come in and build fortunes by trampling unjustly on the poor. People who claim to be righteous act unjustly towards others. And righteous people who seem to have a clear record and nothing wrong, like Job, for example, suffer all kinds of things, while those who cause their pains or cause their injustice get away with it unscathed. He was upset about the excessive, in his measurement, excessive prosperity of godless people even those who openly mocked the Lord his God. These people didn't even seem to get sick. They just died peacefully in the middle of the night and somebody found their dead body and no fuss, no muss, no great pain. I almost lost it, said Asaph, because I began to envy these people. I wanted to be able to live like them, to have a bursting bank account and drive the luxury car of my choice always be able to do whatever I wanted to with a sufficient prosperity and not have to be bothered with want or or need or, or even duty as far as that goes. Well, prosperity is the main cause of envy that Asaph cited here. But I was struck in thinking about what I would preach to you that it's possible to envy a lot of other things besides just prosperity. It's quite possible for most of the people I'm addressing here tonight, who I would know as a congregation generally, to be people of conservative viewpoints, conservative politics, who indeed believe in duly elected constitutional government, to be envious right now. Because why? 
because at least many of us would say we lost in November. And what happens now with people who don't appear, at least by and large, not without any exceptions, of course, but by and large, people are coming in who don't necessarily have a true faith in a sovereign God of providence or who don't necessarily reflect biblical morality and now will come and even want to press unbiblical morality or unbiblical philosophies of government or practices of government upon all of us. And we might cry out with Asaph leading the choir, why, O God, have you allowed your church and many godly people to be subjected to the rule of those who would at least seem to be, in many cases, ungodly? Why are we slipping into a situation that puts us very much like Asaph in envying the ungodly? Now, do not go from here and say that I was labeling one political party as the ungodly party. I did not say that, and I do not mean that. But we all know, certainly, that we come and see various philosophies of government that border on socialism and not on our government that this country's been founded on. And we say, what's going on? How did people advocating these things get in power? Well, secondly, I ask you to hear an important fact about Asaph's depressed thinking, and it's mostly in verses 17 through 20, and I put this label on what's being said there, that envy of the ungodly is based mainly on false evidence. It's a mirage, and this speaker knows it. He knows himself that this appearance of things, as I say in verses 17 through 20 in particular, is not reality. He calls it terrors that appear like a dream when one awakes. Phantoms, he uses that word in verse 20. He knew himself that when he described these ungodly people and their behaviors, that he had to almost exaggerate as much as he could verbally exaggerate to, to try to state what they were like until they sounded almost like cartoon characters. Look at some of the descriptive language that's here, especially the King James brings that out when he says they wear pride as a necklace. Their eyes bulge with fatness. Their tongues strut through the earth. They take possession of the earth by their tongues. And so on, as he leads here. He, he acts as if these people just are, would be immune to disease. My younger sister right now is undergoing radiation treatments for a cancer that we think is caught early but has to be dealt with. And five days a week, one day, Monday through Friday, she goes for six weeks every day for a radiation treatment. Now, it seems like Asaph would say, well, I don't think these arrogant people ever have to do that, do they? I was talking with my sister, and she was just saying how the whole spectrum of humanity was in the waiting room with her when she goes to wait for her cancer radiation. Asaph was wrong about that. The rich tycoon, the powerful man, the governor, the legislator, the unjust judge would sit there getting sick from his chemotherapy or his radiation, and Asaph knew that. But he also speaks here about how these folks even speak with their, their mouths about things that are ungodly. They wag their tongues. They mock God. 
And if they speak about God at all, it's almost as a curse word that they do it. Well, the psalmist said he started to see how false his complaint really was as he recognized the end of these people, that is, the physical end of their bodies, in death. Verse 17, he goes into the sanctuary of God and then he discerns their end. Maybe he passed the cemetery on his way to the temple or synagogue and realized that there were plenty of rich folks with headstones in that cemetery. And he realized it didn't exempt them from a godless death. My wife and I had a very unique and educational experience in our first semester of seminary, a very long time ago now, 1970. We moved to Massachusetts, where the seminary was located north of Boston. If you're familiar with the Massachusetts coast, you know what they call the North Shore. It's the territory along the coast, north of Boston. Our daughter was born in Beverly Hospital. The city of Beverly is there. Gloucester, you have to say it the way they do, Gloucester. Gloucester. It's a fishing town, and, and if you enter Gloucester, they say, how does it go now? Oh, there's a little village called Manchester by the Sea. We lived there for a little while. But they say Manchester by the Sea and Gloucester by the smell. Because when you drive into Gloucester, you know that it has fish canning plants there all over. Well, anyway, we, we lived when we first went there in, a, in an inland area called Wenham, close to the seminary. And we were able, very fortunately able to get a job that we held for less than a year, but it was as live-in caretakers on a large, beautiful estate. It was a 10-acre estate. Wenham is a town that then, in 1970, you couldn't build a home on any acreage smaller than one acre. Now imagine that. How, you know, think about what land you're... Maybe some of you live on many acres, but many of you live on 0.2 acres or 0.3 you couldn't build on a home on less than an acre in Wenham because they expected you to spend a lot of money and pay a lot of taxes. Well, we had live-in quarters on this older home, beautiful turn-of-the-century home. I don't even remember how many bedrooms, at least six bedrooms, maybe four baths, something like that. Swimming pool, beautiful grounds. Everything about it was just colonial perfect. And our hosts, the owners of this home, were people who I would call, I learned to call it, old money. If you don't know the difference between old money and new money, I urge you someday to try to find out. It is very different. People who have always been millionaires, back when a million dollars was actually real money, uh, live with comforts and security around them that you and I don't generally enjoy. And the friends and relatives of, of this couple that we lived with would come and go and they'd be introduced to us and we'd chat and get to know them a little bit. And, you know, we had to say after a number of months there, we looked at each other one day and said, what a bunch of miserable people this is. These people could buy and sell anybody and, and they weren't flashy. They didn't drive, you know, then in those days, Cadillacs or Lincolns would have been the, the so-called rich man's car. Got all kinds of exotic things today that Audis and Mercedes and everything else. But these folks drove Chevrolets or Fords because they didn't have to show off their money. They had it, and they didn't have to show it off. 
they had it in that they went to the hunt club to play polo on Sunday afternoon. First polo match I ever saw in my life. And as we interacted with these people, they, they would learn that I was studying for the ministry, and it seemed like, oh, they somehow thought perhaps I was a counselor who could hear their troubles, and the lady with three divorces and her kids hated her, and everything else would spill out her story. And we came to the conclusion that if you searched out the homeless people of Lancaster today who can only find shelter in Water Street Rescue Mission, they probably aren't any more miserable than these old money folks that we met long ago. Who their children are now, I would assume, reproducing their lifestyle and their complaints and their problems. Starved, deadened souls, both in their day of life and in eternity. The envy of the ungodly is based on false evidence. It's a mirage. They are not all the things that Asaph saw them to be or believed them to be. Well, thirdly then, I want you to see a turning point as it comes here in this psalm, as Asaph's faith got refocused in the act of worship of God. His bitter complaint came to a head beginning in verses 13 and 14. As he was saying, all in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands. All the day long I've been stricken and rebuked. But then he starts to wake up in 15. You almost have to have a long pause before 15. Because he kind of thinks for a minute and says, if I went on speaking this way, I would be insulting the generation of your believing children. And from that point on, he started to see his complaint and his envy for what it really was. And he says, it was when I went into your sanctuary. Now, in that day, whether that was the great temple built by Solomon or perhaps a more temporary setup for worship, because, as I said, he lived in about the time the temple was being built. When I went into your sanctuary, I saw their end. Sabbath worship was the context in which this man of God, who really knew better the whole time, but he wasn't owning up to what he knew, when he came to worship, when he came into contact with the people of God, gathered around him, singing God's praises, greeting one another, friendly fellowship going on, he began to understand. And he said, those people that I envied so much are set in slippery places and they're going to fall to their ruin. They'll be destroyed in a moment. Now, I take a practical lesson from this because it reminds me in a new way of every believer's established habit, at least I hope it is for every believer, to have a habit to be as often as you can in the house of the Lord, to sing the God's praises, to pray prayers of confession that maybe are in someone else's words so, so that they stimulate your thinking of, gee, I hadn't thought about my sin that way. I've had many people compliment. We've been doing written prayers of confession for about 20 years around here. And people say, boy, I love that prayer. It really spoke to me. Well, sure, it was somebody else's insight on how to pray about their sin. And, and you need that. It helps you, not just in helping you to feel better, that you would go home on Sunday and say, oh man, I feel great. Thank goodness for Dr. Light or, or Pastor Walker or whoever the preacher. Thank goodness for the wonderful way he developed God's Word. I feel good. 
Well, we're glad if you feel good when you leave worship, but feeling isn't what it's all about. Thinking is really what it's all about. Worship acts as a divine Holy Spirit gyroscope to rebalance our souls. We learn to think according to the truth and not according to the lies that we even tell ourselves. Romans 12, too, has Paul write and say that the newborn Christian has to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will cease being conformed to this present world. You need reprogramming. There's a movie I kind of hesitate to recommend because whenever I recommend movies, people think I approve of everything in them. And the, hand, the, the movie called Cool Hand Luke from the 1960s is not a movie for children. Absolutely not. But it's a movie with moral lessons in it. When Paul Newman is the incorrigible criminal who keeps escaping from the southern work gang and jail situation and gets dragged back to the camp and uh, urged by an abusive uh, head leader or manager of this country, southern jail, boy... You need to get your mind right. And until a sobbing Paul Newman has been abused physically and mentally and finally holds on to the boss's ankles and says, boss, I got my mind right. Well, he didn't for too long, but that's a famous line. You know how truly pitiful it is that any heir of heaven, which I hope and assume perhaps that you are, actually could envy anything about the life of a hell-bound soul who is without God and without hope in this world, why on earth would you envy such a person? Because they drive a nice car? Because they have a huge bank account? Because they seem to have power in a community or even a country? David in a psalm which you can just switch the numbers. This is Psalm 73. In David's Psalm 37, 35, he said, I saw a wicked, ruthless man flourishing like a green tree in its native soil, but he soon passed away and was no more. I looked for him and he could not be found. He was nowhere and nothing. He was a zero statistic in the annals of eternity. We should thank God for how worship, just simply singing hymns of confident faith as we've already done tonight, reading God's Word, thinking about it together, having someone interpret it for us. We're getting our minds right every week, folks. And it may not strike you as a great revolutionary change in your thinking, but over the years, over the weeks, and over the months in a sound evangelical church, you're getting your mind right through the Word of God, and that's a great thing. You're getting new eyes to evaluate the world for the reality that it is, not the materialistic phantoms and fantasies that blind people for an hour. You know, five turkeys in every pot, and, and you know, just great. We'll spend a few trillion more, and everybody will be in good shape. Uh-huh. And who will pay the bill? So we come fourthly, to the wonderful statements that Asaph makes here, beginning at Psalm 73, 21 and following. And here we find him in the midst of triumphant faith, recovered 
and making a declaration of faith's new foothold on the rock of ages. And he started out saying, my foot had almost slipped. I almost lost it. I almost tumbled completely from my position of faith confidence. Now he's saying, it came back. God led me back. In verse 22, he describes for us how under the influence of this doubt and, and fantasy, he, he, he really is hard. He kind of beats up on himself. And he says, God, I listened to what I just said, and I was acting like a beast. I was acting like a donkey in your presence, braying away. Forgive me, O God, for how foolish I was. And then in verse 23 is, is a linchpin word, one of the great turnaround words used in the Bible quite often. It's a long word. It sounds like three words together. Nevertheless. Do you see nevertheless, regardless of your translation? I think it's, it says that in the beginning of verse 23. Whenever you see nevertheless, you're seeing a U-turn word. Here's the path I was going on. Here's the way my thinking was going. Bad as it was, nevertheless, in spite of that, I am continually with you. And you, O God, are the one who is going to hold me by my right hand, guide me with your counsel, and afterward, take me to glory. Now he's talking about true and everlasting facts that no illusions of this world can possibly take away. I have three G words there in that text. Guided by your counsel, I'm sorry, grasped by your grace, guided by your counsel, glorified in your presence. Those are the three things he sees happening to himself as now his feet are established again on the rock of ages. And he's now saying, I want to be possessed forever and know nothing less than the knowledge of God himself. God, the great king of the ages, God, the great creator, wants to know me, guide me, and glorify me. That's what I want. Now, of course, this is a psalm written many centuries before the appearance in this world of Jesus Christ. So you say, well, you know, it seems like all this happens without the need for Jesus. Don't we need him to come into history and live his sinless life and act, act out and he'd be subjected to his substitutionary death and a glorious resurrection and ascension and all those things? Sure, we can see Jesus standing behind all this, awaiting the coming of Christ and his cross and his powerful resurrection and even his great second coming that hasn't happened yet. And we can say along with Asaph, we're now willing to wait for all that to be accomplished because we know and believe it will be. Now, I brought this psalm out when I was asked to preach this evening. I believe I'm preaching in a few weeks in February, and, and I'll, there I'll take up their, the text for their series on David in 1 Samuel. But I thought tonight I would just bring you something peculiar more to myself, because when people ask me, or this is ever discussed, and, and some of you, if I came to you and said, can you tell me your life verse, or your life, is there a passage that just really defines you, speaks to you, rings true in your life that you love in the scripture? If somebody asks me that, there, there's more than one for sure. There's lots of passages. But I would say in the Old Testament, 
there's none that stands any higher for me than Psalm 73, and in particular, verses 25 and 26. And I don't have time to recite for you everything that was going on in my life in the early 1980s when Psalm 73 jumped off the page and began to kind of take possession of me. The brief sketch was I began ministry as a 25-year-old ordained man in the liberal Presbyterian Church, Presbyterian Church USA. I was in a couple different places within a few years' time, but both places, because of the denomination, were such that they were doctrinally bankrupt, and the presbyteries and gathered organizations that I had to participate in were bringing me in touch with people that, well, Asaph described them pretty well here. Pride, coercion, lack of scripture, liberalism in every possible way, and I was miserable, and in uh, 1980 stepped away from that, stepped away from the pastorate of a church to more than 500 members, although I thought it was funny that with 500 members on the books, we never saw more than 250 at Easter time. Kind of interesting, but that's where a lot of liberal churches are today. If you were a member 50 years ago, you still are, even if you're not alive. And uh, I stepped out from a nice building with Sunday school rooms in a long row that were barely occupied. Folks that many of them confessed to me that my sermons were far too fundamental for their taste. I left and went into the Presbyterian Church in America, which is, as you, I hope you know, is fundamental and conservative evangelical denomination. And I was starting a church. And in 1980-81, the worship attendance I don't think ever had exceeded about 45. We met in, well, all kinds of places, a Christian school, gym, and finally a house that we bought and knocked most of the walls. It was amazing the house didn't fall down, how many walls we took out. But somebody knew whether we could take the wall out or not. But you know what? About two years into that, even though I felt with all my heart I was following what God wanted, doing what God wanted me to do, I was in a funk of self-pity. I remember the Christmas of 1981 in particular, sort of a low point for me. We had had some faithful folks who joined our fellowship have to move on to job transfers. It was a recession going on in the western New York area and much of the country. And it wasn't going forward. It seemed like things weren't happening. And one night I fell asleep on the couch and woke up in the middle of all things of the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. I'd never seen that movie before, 1980. They didn't used to show it in anything like the frequency that they do now. And I was fascinated. You probably know the basic plot. I'm, I can't tell you the whole thing if you don't. But Jimmy Stewart is perfectly cast as this man who's had many of his life hopes and dreams dashed and he couldn't travel, he couldn't get to college because he had to stay home and mind the family business and be the good guy who kept the ship running while everybody else went off and did glorified things and one friend of his uh, owned a huge company and had all kinds of wealth having invited Jimmy to, to join in and he had to say no. And then Jimmy finds out what his town and his family and all the people he knows would have been like if he had never lived. Clarence the angel. By the way, my, I'm sure my, our, my personal angel would be somebody like Clarence. If, if you don't know Clarence, it, it's not funny, but 
I can't tell you how, even though it wasn't scripture, that movie ministered to me. In telling me that my envy of the place I had left, oh, what I would give to have that building back again, that church building with the beautiful sanctuary and the organ and everything else. But I was envying things that were empty. They were phantoms. And God was telling me that he was doing important things. Even if 40 people or 50 people were the maximum I preached to every Sunday. And that did change over the next years. But there was a nevertheless there in my life. And it still summons me today so that when I read Psalm 73, it's a little bit like a voice of the archangel speaking to me. If I'm down, I can read these two verses and I can tell you it changes me. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, and believe me, they're failing in retirement faster than ever. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What's at stake here is in the shifting sands of our culture, our government, our very nation that we hold precious. As we watch it change, it's going to change, folks, in some probably dramatic ways, even this year. Can we see, instead of envy for those who aren't doing it, what we think is God's way, and our anger at them and our jealousy towards them or whatever emotion you bring to it, can we stop in the midst of that and say, oh God, who do I have in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. And my flesh and my heart will fail. Oh yes, they will. Inevitably. But when they fail, I find again and again that God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know, there's places where the Psalms speak of longing for God, fainting for God, feeling a compelling thirst for God. And I find as I look around in the publications of Christians today, very little of that kind of language. I get one Christian magazine, I won't name it, but I think it once had that kind of a view of God. Today, I wish they would rename it the sociology of Christianity because it's all about what we need to do for each other. Not too much about what God alone can do. And I find that there is this diminished God being worshipped. Not diminished because he's grown any smaller, but because we don't long for him alone. We don't look to him and call him by his many scriptural names, the Most High. That's one of my favorite names for God. It's a frequent one in scripture. The Most High. The one of whom there is no one higher. Isn't that a great name to call God? And we've turned God into a little pygmy being that one man said is little more than a corner drugstore dispensary for our health and wealth and bodily or political comforts. I'm not good on New Year's resolutions. I almost never make them because I know my sinful nature too well. I know they won't make it through January. But I ask you, as I ask myself on this Sunday night, poised before 
some real changes coming for our country. Can we determine as individual Christians and as the body of Christ called Westminster, can we determine to rediscover and long for and hunger after and thirst after the limitless grandeur of God Himself so that we would be so captivated by His beauty, His power, His eternally satisfying grace and salvation that all the little things, the other things we would envy or covet or dedicate ourselves to would sink into unimportance. Folks, I ask you to take Psalm 73, 25 and 26. This is your memory assignment. When I went to Sunday school, we had a memory verse every week. On Saturday night at my house, mother said, get out the shoe shine kit. You have to shine your shoes for church and tell me your memory verse. I associate memory verses with shining my shoes to this day. Mom said, what's the verse? You know how boys are. Boys in Sunday school always said, teacher, can't we get that verse in John where it says, Jesus wept? I think we can handle that one. I'm assigning a memory verse, actually a couple sentences. Psalm 73, 25 and 26. The solid rock on which you will stand and endure, not just in the year 2021, but beyond it, as long as your God shall hold you in his salvation, which will be, by the way, forever. My flesh and my heart will certainly fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen. Father, you find your people tense, strained, worried. We've felt tremors in the earth in our political lives in these recent days. And while it matters not within this room which of us voted for what candidate or what our personal shades of gray are on, on politics of America, we put our trust in a lot of things that are not right, things that cannot support, things that cannot fulfill, things that are, in fact, phantoms. Would you minister to our minds increasingly in the days and months of 2021 the ministry of truth through your word, by singing your praise, by, min by interchanging views with Christian believers who, like ourselves, do not have ultimate wisdom in ourselves and are ready to admit it. Father, you indeed are our portion forever. And through Jesus Christ our Lord, we give you thanks. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.